So, for us as Christians, often we'd rather be similar to others. We'd rather blend in rather than be different. As church, we'd often rather be the same. Joyce Mayer, in her book Trusting God Day by Day, says one of the strongest and most persistent fears that people have is the fear that they won't have what they need. What they deem to need are things like finance, or successful relationships, or significant possessions, or influence, or maybe even credibility, or perhaps even the ability to do what we feel God has called us to do. We get those nagging doubts. Are we, am I capable? Am I worthy of this task? Have I got enough strength or energy to do it? And uh, Eddie Askew, in his book, Cross Purposes, talks about getting busier. And he says the busier we get, burdening ourselves with more and more work. We call it uh, you know, duty, Christian duty. And uh, we have acceptance. But bit by bit, maybe resentment builds. And even when we find the courage to say no to new demands, we feel guilty, we feel disempowered, and apathy sets in. And Eddie Askew reminds us there's no need to feel guilty because Jesus understands. He's not our slave driver. He's not the automatic robot system that just winds us up and sets us going. He's the shepherd who cares and leads his sheep. So this story that we had read to us this morning, which is indeed well known, but it's really interesting for looking at the similarities and the differences for the people involved. I want you just to think for a minute about the context of that story. Context is all important. We read these stories in the Bible, we hear them, but often we forget to put it into place, historical place. There's colour, there's noise... There's heat of the burning sun, mixed perhaps with the smells of an onshore breeze. There are physically tired legs after a long, hurried walk. These people who've tried to get around before the boat. It's hard, it's stony ground, yet people are still willing to sit down. And to be honest, there's the smell of hot Sweaty people close together. Crushed grass. Drying fish from the beach. And then we have these two groups of people. And it's not a nice Henman Hill or Murray Mount or, you know, whatever. It's not manicured grass. It's not everybody sitting there feeling relaxed. There are those who are receiving and there are those who are those who are giving. There's a constant movement and jostling in the crowd. People to see what's going on, catch a glimpse of this miracle man. People pushing for a grandstand view, perhaps. People talking, shh, be quiet, I can't hear. People trying to listen. The voice of Jesus, strong and firm, but coming across on the wind and then maybe going away on the wind. For the crowds, it's a time to receive. It's a time to learn. It's a time to vindicate or justify. 
my opinions about this person. Charlatan, magician, good guy, the son of God. Let's listen and find out. And then you have the disciples. I've described them as like the roadies of the tour, you know, in charge of crowd control. The spin doctors to make sure the right message gets out. Security, we don't want anybody gate crashing the stage. The organisers, those people who should have a plan for this major gathering event. But the reality is, these people were tired. Jesus, if you just think back a bit, before what we read, Jesus had sent the disciples out on a preaching tour, and they'd returned, excited There'd been good experiences, and they told him everything that had happened. People had heard about the healings that were happening. They they were coming for more. They were making greater and greater demands on their time, on their patience. So much so, they had had no time to grab a bite to eat for themselves. And physical limitation was inevitably colliding like a train with the feelings of inadequacy, Bewilderment, lack of control, perhaps even a failure to have the situation all buttoned up. It was difficult. Very human emotions. They were no different to most people. Yet failing to recognise that even here, that whilst they may have felt out of control, Jesus was in control. You had this... Conflict, if you like, between human endeavour and spiritual authority. The one that's rushing around like something demented and the other that is calmly having everything in control. And what about us? What about our journey? The Christian journey is always about travelling. It's never about standing still. I like that analogy. It's never about being a member of the audience in the auditorium. It's about being a member of the orchestra. And whether you just play the one note on the triangle or you're the lead violin, we're all playing a part. We're not just sitting back and watching. I like the way how in The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis describes his journey as travelling further in and higher up further in and higher up. And we too return excited from our mountaintop experiences and we're ever so, ever so eager to tell others. We've made a new discovery. Uh, We've seen some miraculous example of faith in action. Uh, We've learned a new worship song or come across a fabulous Bible reading, a new revelation. But then, of course, the demands increase. We cope. And the demands of life increase a little more. And we maybe even thrive. But as the demands grow greater and greater, we skip lunch. We're too busy. Or we skip a prayer meeting. Or we skip a Bible study. Or we skip the occasional Sunday service. My life is too busy. I've got too much else to do. And then suddenly we wonder why it is that the journey... Suddenly seems to be endless. There is no end point. There's no destination board in sight. The load seems too heavy to bear. Faith seems hollow. Mission seems arduous. And the journey has become not further in and higher up, 
but further in and stuck in the mud. So here are these disciples, ragged around the edges. Their tempers are fraying, wondering how much longer they could cope. And they'd forgotten that, of course, they can cope. That sort of ninja moment when they failed to remember the enabling of the Holy Spirit and completely forgotten to just let go and let God, to let God take control. So can you imagine, in that frame of mind, imagine you've got the grandchildren staying with you, you're trying to make a birthday cake, they're around your feet, there's flour going in all directions, you know, and that's the moment when somebody says, can I go to the toilet? And you go, ah, you know. So Jesus' request to feed the crowd must have come like the final straw at the end of a really busy day. And did you notice their reaction? They wanted to get rid of the problem. They said to Jesus, let's send the people away. Get rid of the problem. But as always, Jesus wanted to solve the problem by meeting head-on the evident human need. And did you notice, Jesus is as concerned about the crowd's need for food as he is about teaching them. It's not just all theory. It's not just all you know, mind and head stuff. It's body stuff. How often do we imagine God is only interested in part of our well-being, the, you know, the biggest Russian doll, if you like, as opposed to the smallest one. The spiritual, the physical, the emotional, the intellectual, every learning style imaginable, every personality type describable. Seemed all right for Jesus, of course. He appeared to have an almost inexhaustible supply of energy when it came to helping others. But however much they tried to live up to his example, the disciples felt they couldn't. And they react in a very human way. They see the size of the problem and are immediately intimidated by it. And like the animal which hops instead of moving conventionally, difference is challenging and often causes us to give in rather than to give it up to God. And this is where there's a stark contrast with Andrew. Look at how he was different to the other disciples. Because Andrew starts very much to recognise the difficulties, but to start with what he's got. Those loaves and those fish. It's the way we have to learn to cope with our problems, to recognise that our different mindset to the world, instead of taking, we have to let go. Instead of saying, look how strong I am, we have to say, look how mighty my God is. Because the solution to the problem, whatever the problem is, rests with God, not with me. We all go through situations in life, some good, some bad, and sometimes we use that phrase, you know, I'm, I, I am going through something. But maybe going through something is good. Maybe it means we're not stuck in the mud. Maybe it means we're learning how to face those difficulties and move forward. It's just whether we're doing it on our own or in Christ's strength. So 
So how might the world have dealt with this situation? They'd have probably come up with graphs and statistics, a motivational pep talk, perhaps, extolling the virtues of fasting, uh, kick up the backside with threats of firing if people didn't pull their weight and get things sorted, a quick conclusion, send everybody home to sort it out for themselves. How did Jesus deal with this situation? He recognised it. He saw the disciples were strained to the limit. He did something about it, which didn't involve demanding more of them. And he accepted the situation. He accepted their vulnerability and told them they needed a day off, time to relax, time to recharge. We forget that because God made us, he understands us. He doesn't spend time reading the pre-flight manual before taking any action. He instantly responds to our needs. Because he created us human, he knows we get tired. He knows the limits of our abilities. And being tired is part of being human, and it's nothing to feel ashamed of or enfeebled by. Have you noticed the worldview says when you feel tired, the answer is to work harder. The world says that unless we're tired, we can't be working hard enough. The world says that to serve its demands better, we rest less, work harder, longer, and more intensively. God is different. He demands that we recognise our limitations and that we take rest in order to serve him better. That we learn to do all things in Christ. I think, bizarrely, of all Bible characters, we need, sorry, of all book characters, we need to learn to be borrowers. Thinking of the Mary Norton children's books. And the reason why I say that is, we long to be possessors of things, including time itself. But have you ever thought, Jesus, by example, demands us to be borrowers? The borrowed cot for a manger. The borrowed boat on the lake. The borrowed meal in this story, the loaves and fishes. The borrowed colt that we read about on Palm Sunday. The borrowed tomb that we know about, followed by the resurrection. These were not things owned and possessed by Jesus. They were things borrowed for an appropriate moment in time. More than any other command in Scripture, God tells us not to fear. He never promises us a trouble-free life, but he does promise us his presence and the strength, mental, physical and emotional, that we need to get through those tough times. No matter what we're going through, it's no surprise to God. He's not unsure of what's around the corner. He's not unprepared for whatever lies ahead. And we need to demonstrate, therefore, our difference to the world view on the uncertainties of past, present, or future by putting our trust in him, by demonstrating our confidence in his plans for our lives. And it's these similarities and differences that will determine how much we look like the world and how much we look different. How much we sound like the world 
and look different. How much we behave like the world and look different. How much we believe like the world and how much we look different. How much we recognise how valued we are by our creator God. In Isaiah 43, we read this. Don't be afraid. Uh, And it's prefaced when you're between a rock and a hard place. Uh, Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you'll not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end because I am God, your personal God, the Holy Spirit of Israel, your saviour. And in Habakkuk, we read this. And I, I, I love this. It has the framework of an aggravated farmer. Though the cherry trees don't blossom and the strawberries don't ripen, though the apples are worm-eaten and the wheat fields stunted, though the sheep pens are sheepless and the cattle barns empty, I'm singing joyful praise to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my saviour God, counting on God's rule to prevail. I take heart and gain strength. I run like a deer. I feel like I'm king of the mountain. And I love the little note at the end of this. This isn't something to be said in secret. It's for congregational use with a full orchestra. You know, make a big noise about it. Be excited Be jubilant. In fellowship with one another, encourage one another. Be bold. Be amazing in strength because of this. Our circumstances in life are never the problem. They won't last. But until we change our thinking, no matter what's going on in our lives, we will be stuck. There will be just similarities in our lives and no differences to the general population. Christ calls us to be different for him, through him, in him, always. We're familiar with that phrase, king of the mountain, aren't we? You know, from cycle racing. The jubilation of winning a race. Well, we too can share that jubilation and it should be something to celebrate to rejoicing for congregational use with a full orchestra. Amen.